Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional song making at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org slash audit. Hey everyone, I'm Laura Lavoir and this is Song Cycle the official podcast of Cincinnati Song Initiative, where we talk everything song. It's history, it's creation, it's performance, and it's ability to keep us connected through stories. In this episode, I'm talking with, wait for it, the Dr. Amelia Nagoski. Y'all, I mean it when I say that having the opportunity to talk to Dr. Nagoski was, at least for me, as magical as going to Disney. She's a musician, a choral director, and co-author of the New York Times best-selling book, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. Now, if any of y'all have ever listened to any episode of this podcast, it's very likely Brene Brown has come up at least once. You all know that I'm a huge Dr. Brown fan. So, I heard the doctors Nagoski, Amelia, and her twin sister Emily, on Brene's podcast talking about this book that just seemed to nail a lot of things that I hadn't put words to before. So I read the book and I learned more about Amelia's story as an artist and how burnout quite literally put her in the hospital. And I knew I had to talk to her about the stressors that we as artists deal with on a daily basis, especially during COVID. And we talk about that and so much more in this episode, so prepare yourself. We talk about the patriarchy, the real self-care, I'm not just talking face masks and bath bombs, but like real self-care, and a deep dive on music and its impact on us as people, both inside and out, and, of course, burnout. Welcome, everyone, to a brand new episode of Song Cycle. I... Cannot believe that I am actually sitting virtually over Zoom with the Dr. Amelia Nagoski. This is like, I'm starstruck a little, and it's a little nerve-wracking, but we're here. That is the most fun introduction I've ever had. (laughs) But it's true. So is it okay if I call you Amelia, or would you like me to proceed forward with Dr. Okay. (laughs) Listen, we work hard for that DMA, okay? As someone going through it, I get it. We work hard. Yeah, yeah, that DMA cost me two hospitalizations and the better part of my soul. So, and yes. we're we're going to talk about that. We're yeah, going to talk yeah. about that. Um, so, yeah. can you, Amelia, just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're up to, what you've done, and why you're famous? <laughs> <laughs> I don't really think I'm famous, but um, I uh, 
I have, I am currently um, self-employed because I had to leave my tenured teaching position at a small private university in New England because I am a COVID long hauler. Uh, so right now my full-time job is like managing my health and my energy. And it's a good thing that I wrote a New York times bestselling book about managing stress, because that's probably the only reason I'm getting through all of that information and knowledge that we put in the book is really helping me manage navigating healthcare systems and, 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 you know, keeping up with my own health management issues, but that is what's kind of going on primarily in my life. So I'm not doing a lot of work. I haven't stood in front of an ensemble in two years which breaks my heart so hard. Like the actual breaking is happening in my chest as I say those words. Um, But I try to make myself sing a couple of times a week and I practice my ukulele. So I'm trying to make myself do music um, as much as possible. I also, in the course of my long COVID treatment, was diagnosed with um, uh, autistic spectrum disorder, uh, level one, sort of what they used to call Asperger's syndrome. Um, and so I'm working on a YouTube channel called Autistic Burnout, translating the ways that the book Burnout, uh, the science in that book also applies to uh, folks on the spectrum. And um, that's really what I'm doing these days. Me and music are, are, are uh, I don't want to say like on a break permanently, like, or on, a, hold on. I don't want to say we're on a break, like intentionally, but like we've, I'm, I have to make myself find my way back and my professional opportunities to make music are so limited based on, you know, pandemic and chronic illness and stuff. So um, just a few things going on. Yeah. yeah. So that's, what's going on with me. It's a, it's a little weird, but yeah, yeah. I can't even imagine I had COVID like everybody briefly. Um, yeah. I got the, I got the Omicron one. That was delightful. Oh, hey, so but, pretty recently. Yes, like uh, like a month ago. But I oh. can't even imagine. Like I've had friends also going through the long COVID thing, and it's just yeah. heartbreaking to see that happen. Especially knowing like that it's taking you away from something that you love so much, like being you know with your yeah. choirs or being with ensembles and making music. I was it's, not ready to leave teaching, and uh, it was. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Heartbreaking. It's tough. And that's, I mean, that's part of the reason why we're, I mean, that's not the reason we're here talking specifically about that, but just. But my story is a drop in an ocean of similar stories. Exactly. And I think this is why I was telling you kind of before we officially started the podcast, like I've realized in my own life and in talking to so many people who are in similar situations that like COVID has sort of forced life transitions on us that we were not expecting and not quite ready for, um, whether it's health stuff or career stuff. And that's kind of manifested itself in the people I've been able to talk to. Yeah. um, And as as an inevitable part of that, changing our relationship with music and professional musicians and amateur musicians I've talked to have all talked about the ways that their access to music making and their interest in music making has come and go in these waves according to their mental health and to, you know, statistic or logistical uh, guidelines and requirements. And it's, it's a shame because uh, music is one of the greatest things we can have in our lives to contribute positively to our mental health. And the fact that a pandemic is taking that away is nothing I ever expected to see in my lifetime, nothing I was ever prepared for. And, uh, it's, it's so great to have a chance to like talk to another musician and 
<laughs> and be part of a music community. It's very good for us. Well, just so you know, by being on the podcast, you're officially part of the CSI fam. So <laughs> you you have a musical family, at least in Cincy. So I want to just talk a little bit about kind of your up until we'll say up until COVID, up until COVID kind of forced a reckoning. Um, what what is your career as a musician and what kind of led you into, I mean, I know a little bit about your story, but not everyone who's listening knows. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about kind of your progression through your musical career and what kind of happened to you to ultimately lead to burnout? Yeah. Uh, well, it started in 1986. <laughs> When I was like an elementary or middle schooler um, in my father's uh, photographic studio, he's a photographer and he had a stereo in there and I would stand in the studio in front of the full length mirror, waving my arms to, this is embarrassing, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Requiem. And I thought that I was a conductor and I, something my body just said, yes, this, this is it. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I have theories now in retrospect what it was that my body was doing that made it tell me yes. But I think like all musicians, we have this moment in our youths when we just understand that music, this, this is the thing I want to do. We just feels right and we know it and it drives us to, to pursue it in a way that the Western world is not, is not, uh, uh, economically <laughs> or or academically suited to allow us to live as a lifestyle. Um, so so I, I knew in eighth grade, I was 100% sure if you ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? A conductor. And every minute since the eighth grade, what do you want to be when you grow up? A conductor. That's that's it. That's all I've ever wanted. And I, and I have learned since then that some of that like single-mindedness kind of like fixation drive is is actually a function of my, you know, being on the autistic spectrum. That's a gift that I have been given in in as part of autism. Um, but I took all the music classes in high school. I did my undergraduate at my state university, which happened to be the University of Delaware. Um, anyone familiar with choral music probably knows who Paul Head is. Um, I was a junior when Paul Head was hired at University of Delaware, so I was there for his initial um, introduction to the university and started learning from him about like feelings. One of the things Paul Head as a conductor does is, is ask singers to be honest and to express their feelings when they sing. And I, um, as, as, as me and my, you know, undiagnosed autistic self was like not completely sure that feelings were real was sort of thinking that people were just acting like they thought they were supposed to act and not re like I, I was you know kind of a mess uh but then I went on and I taught because this is my plan I would get my undergraduate degree I would teach high school and conduct choirs in high school and then I would get my master's degree in conducting and then I get a doctorate in conduct that was my plan P.S. that's exactly what I did because autism and fixation and you just don't quit things like you just do it um even though lots of things came up in the meantime after my fifth year teaching although if i'm honest it's my fourth year teaching high school i was a classic textbook case of teacher burnout i considered getting pregnant so i could have like a maternity leave instead of having to teach that's a terrible plan by the way nobody do that it's also you won't get paid if you take <laughs> that time off so <laughs> don't get me yeah, started yeah. on that <laughs> Oh yeah. I was just like, how can I, how can I not teach? What? There's um, 
um, in Burnout, we have a set of stories that are composite stories. We have two characters, but those through those two characters, we tell the stories of dozens of women who we know, true stories. Um, and there's a teacher character, Julie, who starts the book burnt out from teaching and she considers selling drugs. Maybe if I could just, I could sell drugs. I wouldn't have to teach anymore. Maybe that would be a realistic income for me. Um, and it's like kind of a joke and also kind of not a joke. And like, that's what burnout feels like, just the desperation. Um, so I left teaching and I went to get my master's degree and I was uh, I went to Westminster Choir College, which is known for the touchy-feely, you know, conservatory approach. And um, and it, it did the job for me. It, like, showed me the thing I'd been missing um, that people don't talk about in music. Because I guess we're so busy, especially music educators, trying to prove that what we do is worth it. Trying to be scientific about what we do, trying to be academic about what we do, that we all, we all kind of take for granted the feelings, the emotions, not just how good it feels to make the music, but um, how powerful it is to an audience to experience the emotions of a performer live in a place together. Uh, we all take that for granted and, and then there's a kind of underlying assumption that that doesn't really matter. That what really matters about being a musician is that you are historically informed and that your technique is perfection and that you are never out of tune, even remotely slightly. And, you know, like precision and perfection and like cranking out a consistent product. Um, and that's, uh, that's not what music actually is. And I couldn't figure that out until I went to Westminster. And then... I was like, oh, there's this humanity that has to be a part of it. Um, and I, I went to get my doctorate at the University of Connecticut, um, where I really liked the professor of conducting who was there, but it turned out she was leaving the university. She was like, you should come here, but I'm leaving. Do you still want to come? And I was like, yeah, because I had been taught by Paul Head, who went to Westminster, and then I went to Westminster and I thought that a school was a school of thought and that when you go to a school, the whole school would have this philosophy. No, <laughs> I went to a state land grant institution where there was like that fight between PhDs and DMAs about who was more worthy, where the PhDs thought the DMAs were like fake musicians because all they did was play or sing and that's not as worthy as being able to you know write a a, a well-cited paper about an analysis of a piece of music and the dmas all think that the phds are frustrated performers that like they they wish they could do what the dmas do but because they're not skilled enough performers or not brave enough emotional vulnerable people that that they hide behind their writing and they don't value what each other has to offer. And I am the only woman ever to get a doctorate in conducting, instrumental or vocal. Um, it's just a doctorate in conducting at that school. I'm the only woman ever to finish that program. Um, I was surrounded by men. The vast majority of the faculty were men, and of course, overwhelmingly white also. Um, and me, female, 
conductor coming from this touchy-feely Westminster woo-woo humanity point of view, whereas most of them were coming from the PhD accuracy historically. And I, I mean, my minor in undergrad was medieval history. I am interested in early music. I'm interested in historical information and whatever they're like. I want to do the academic stuff. I, I love to nerd out on the academic stuff. Um, but I want to use that as a tool to make art, not as an end in itself. Um, and they did not value that in me. They did not value the femininity in me. They did not value the, the only skill of mine they valued was that I have a gift for diction. I can teach anybody how to pronounce anything. In particular, I studied Russian in high school. So I did my dissertation on Rachmaninoff. I wanted to do my dissertation on something to do with like score prep um, as, as uh, parallel to it, like a Stanislavski style actor prepares, like using a sort of a holistic approach to score preparation. That's about notes and music, but also self and identity. And my advisor said to me, that's not music. Yeah. <laughs> And um, and what the other professor said, well, you're really good at Russian. You should do something with Russian. And I was like, well, I'm not really good with Russian. I studied Russian in high school and I can pronounce the crap out of Russian because nobody else can. And they kept coming to me being like, Amelia, help me pronounce this Russian. So I learned how to pronounce Russian and I got good at it. So that's what my dissertation's on. That's what they valued in me. And somewhere around my second year, maybe third year, the stomach pain started. And I haven't been like super healthy my whole life. I've had a lot of chronic pain. Uh, so I ignored it. <laughs> I didn't pay any attention. And then one night in the middle of the night, I, I thought I was going to die. The pain in my stomach. And uh, I went to the emergency room. My white blood cell count was through the roof. But otherwise, they couldn't find anything wrong. And they sent me home and told me it was stress and relax. And uh, I was like, okay. I'm I'm a mother of three teenage stepchildren, a stepmother of three teenagers. Uh, I'm married. I'm commuting 65 miles each way to a full-time doctor program where I do not fit, where who I am is a complete antithesis of what they want from me. And yet I'm striving to make this happen anyway. Uh, and I'm also working three part-time jobs. So how, how am I going to rela relax was not my solution. Um, uh, so the following year I was, I was back in the hospital, but in the meantime, uh, my sister has a PhD in public health and had already written a New York times bestselling book called come as you are the surprising new science that will transform your sex life. So she came down literally to the hospital with books in her hand <laughs> about stress management and how stress manifests in the body and how you deal with it. And I'm, you know, home and I'm reading those books. And one of them says that rage can be held in the body. And like, I just saw the word rage on the page and I just started crying because I'd never seen the word rage and recognized it in myself before. And if rage is held in the body and I'd never recognized it before, that means all my rage from all my life is, is in there. And my, I call my sister, this book says that rage is held in your body. And she was like, you didn't know that? I thought you were a conductor. I thought your job was to like express feelings. 
from music through your body. And I was like, all right. Oh yeah. <laughs> Oops. Um, so yeah, but the, the, the quantity of it and the, and the sort of quality, the positive or negativity of the emotion was, I was not in touch and I, um, I had, had been repressing a lot of things. And in the end, the thing that really put me in the hospital was the friction between who I was and who the world expected me to be. In particular, in academic classical music, my femaleness, my lack of neurotypicalness, um, my interest in big picture holistic connections, both inside of music history, the social history of music, um, music theory, and sort of the psychology of composers, but also the humanity of the people in the room who make the music together, and the collective psychological experience of an audience and performers together. That's I kind of think that's a conductor's job is making connections on all of those levels. And there was just no support for that kind of work at all where I was being surrounded by and the lack of support for the work I wanted to do and the lack of support for just who I was as a person in general um, uh, is what put me in the hospital. And so that's what burnout is about. It's about all the science that Emily brought me in the hospital and all of the diverse fields that we had to reach to, to get me the information I needed to understand why my doctoral program almost killed me twice. I have so many things that I want to say. <laughs> Just like your experience is truly, I feel like a catch-all for everything that so many musicians who pursue academia go through. Through, you know, from the the PhD DMA dichotomy to mm -hmm. performance strat, like the PhD DMA thing is so funny to me because it's so true. But like the performance stress, the wanting to do a certain type of work or study a particular thing or work in a certain way, and you're not supported. And the thing that, and I'm sure we'll address this kind of over the course of our conversation, but the thing that just blows my mind is that we still, despite all of these multifaceted points of adversity, are like, no, we still love music. <laughs> We're still gonna do it. Yeah. We begin our careers in music as little eighth grade people or however young we are when we know that this is it in love with the feelings that music gives us, with what it does to serve us. And then as professionals, we become the servants of the music. And the thing that used to feed our souls now puts food on our table. And our relationship with this changes so drastically. And yet, there is still access somehow to that thing that originally touched us back. Eighth grade Amelia still can listen to the second movement of the Bach Requiem. And every single time, it's like a, like a you know, shot straight to my heart of, of, oh, right. Okay, great. This is, this is why. This is, this is the reason. This is the thing. Absolutely. This actually ties really beautifully into one of the first questions that I wanted to ask you. So as musicians, I call non-musician folk, we call them muggles. Um, okay. because they're they're non-music folk. Um, but 
it seems that we as musicians know so much earlier than the muggles of the world that we we know what we want to do with our lives and what can what will contribute that meaning to kind of pull from your book it's kind of we know so much earlier that like that's going to be the meaningful thing of our lives and what we want to do and it's usually at a pretty tender young age you were saying like yeah. eighth grade for you for me it was around the same time like freshman sophomore year of high school actually that's not true it was when I was four. My parents yeah, are church yeah. musicians. And I remember hearing the soloists at my church and I was like, that's what yes. I want to do. Yes. I want to sing. So yes. so why do you think that is? And I just want to know why you think that is. Like, why do you think that we know so much earlier than our counterparts who are non-musical? My guess, according to the science I learned writing the book, is that music uses so many different parts of the brain. Music is a whole brain function. It's social and aural, A-U-R-A-L, as well as physical and verbal. And, you know, it's about movement. So it's kinesthetic, like moving and um, small motor movement and large motor movement and sort of your large scale sense of time, all of that sort of cerebellum responsibility stuff. It's also about making connections and predicting patterns which there's a whole, the basal ganglia involved in doing that stuff. It's a, it's a whole brain function. So when we make music, it engages all of ourselves in a way that almost nothing else does. And because it doesn't require any theological understanding, you don't have to understand the rules of a game, like when you play a, a team sport, which can also accomplish the same feeling. It's easy to access really young. I mean infants understand when you bounce with them they know how good that feels and how right that is and um all people are musicians all people are musical because we have that built into us but i do think there's some of us who some of us like okay i'll just speak for me some of us don't have any other thing that ever comes and does that for us and then one day here comes music and it just it fills that void and it's like, oh, of course, that's what I needed all along. I totally get that, like on a deep spiritual level. And so that actually, you're just, you're on the wavelength of like the questions that I want to ask you, which I love. This is amazing. So this brings me to my next question is, this is kind of a, a personal question. I told you life transitions and personal crises and burnout are a thing in my own personal life right now. Um, but so we have this sense of something that feels right. We have something that fills this void. You know, we have music. It engages everything that just is good and we get it young and we're like, okay, this is the thing. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take voice lessons in high school. I'm going to go get, you know, my my bachelor of music, my master of music. I'm going to go into academia. I'm going to teach and perpetuate this love of music and it's going to be amazing and my life is going to be perfect and music filled. Okay, so fast forward <laughs> to today, right now, and mm -hmm. all of a sudden you look at your life and you're like, Hmm, this is not what I expected. Things are not happening the way they should be. I, I'm sure you understand this. So like, uh -huh. what happens or what about when you don't make it? I use giant air quotes here. Sure, sure. Yeah. What happens when you don't make it in the career? 
And what happens to that sense of identity or meaning or purpose in your life? Yeah, this is complicated. And I think I do need to go back to sort of like the evolutionary history of music in the brain, um, which is that we were not made to be professional musicians. We are not wired to be trained in the intensive conservatory style, 100,000 hours plus way that we now train musicians in the evolutionary history of human music making, which is at least 20,000, probably 50,000 years long, right? So imagine, let's be conservative and say 20,000 years of human history, 10,000 years ago, you know, two, five and a half, 5,000 years ago, and then two and a half thousand. And then we get to like, okay, you know, year of our Lord, and then another thousand years and we're at Charlemagne, right? And then so in the last thousand years, this tiny 5% of human, 5% of human music making, we've got maybe from about 1600 on came the idea that you could find somebody who was good at music, start training them as a child, just like you train all kids to make music as children, and that they would specialize in that. So music wouldn't just be like one of the things they did in their life of being a Renaissance person, but like this person, like and in the Baroque era, this person's going to be a virtuoso. This person is especially skilled in this one thing. And the musical culture feeds into that by, you know, inventing idiomatic writing and, and showing off difficult music that only highly, highly, highly trained people can do. And this kind of specialization in training uh, began at around the same time as what would become our modern era, like post-serfdom, post-medieval, um, you know, kinds of governments and community systems. And the financial support of someone who would do that kind of work only began about mm, four, maybe 400 years ago, just barely. And so the kind of changes to the brain, because music is a whole brain function, um, when we train that much, musicians' brains don't look like normal people's brains. I'm going to call them normal people because, you know, they don't look like muggle brains, you know? <laughs> uh, like, that's just that's just true. Like, if you're a trained neuroscientist, you can look at two scans and be like, which one's the musician, which one's the muggle? They're just literally physically different because the intensity of the training that we do as classical musicians literally changes who we are. Um, there's other factors too, where like different kinds of personality types are attracted to music making as a profession, but et cetera, et cetera, it's complicated. Um, but my point is that who we are as human beings is not structurally designed to handle, you know, evolutionarily to be a musician as far as like the neural type is musician wise. Um, and our economy, our social structure has not been collectively pointed toward this for all of its history, only in the very, very last top skim of a moment of a blink in history have we been coping with the idea of where do musicians fit, not only in the social hierarchy, but in the economic world, whose job is it to support them, what do we value them for, and then you add in the questions of class and race and physical ability and mental ability and mental health and like the, all the intersections of oppression on top of the fact that you are a musician, which is like putting you neurologically in a whole other class. Um, so I know that you asked me about like, what if you don't make it big or what if you don't make it? What if you're not like, what if you're not singing at the Met by the time you're 34? Um, 
then I think that makes you like all musicians, basically. Um, and you have to remember that the thing you're trying to do is weird. It's weird. The thing, the thing that called you in your heart and came so naturally to you is weird. <laughs> and so there, it, there is no predicting what's going to happen. And I think so many of us, when we feel that call from early in our youth, um, we have no idea what oppression is. We have no idea about white supremacy. We learned Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms, and we just don't, we, we think what they have in common is that their names all start with B. We're not like dead white Germans, men. We're not, we're not thinking about that at all. We're not thinking about how like the invention of musicology happened in Germany right before like the worst white supremacy philosophies were starting to like infect and become part of political systems that led to Hitler. Like we don't think about that when we learn Bach, Beethoven and Brahms, we're not like, oh, Bach, Beethoven and Brahms are, are held up as heroes because of Hitler. Like we don't make that connection when we're four and we really love we haven't even made it to wagner yet we haven't right right exactly (laughs) yeah yeah uh so um i think what i'm saying is along the way of that career we discover that the world is so much more complicated and that what we want from it what we value in it is something so rare that i don't think that there is I don't think that the, I I think it's just a matter of we discovered that the world values other things, even though we value this one thing. And we're like, yes, of course the world is like, um, no, I don't know if I've answered your question. You've addressed points of the question for sure. (laughs) Um, The thing is for me that my, my, so my, I told you my um, career goal was finish my doctorate, teach college, conduct college choir. I did that. And after I had conducted my first concert of my first college choir, where I was the professor of music and I was their conductor, I'm crying because like I have, I fulfilled eighth grade. Amelia is like, we're done now. We got the thing. And I have, I have no other goals. Like this is as far as my definition of make it I made it all the way to the thing that I wanted to do. Would I love to be conducting honor choirs and like have a huge, you know, famous choir? Yes, I would love that too. Um, But also along the way, I learned that that stuff, the definition of what success is and what making it is, comes from the white supremacist, cishet normative, exploitative, late capitalist patriarchy. Say and that ten times fast. <laughs> white supremacists is normative, exploitatively capitalistic patriarchy. Call it the Wushnelp, for short, Wushnelp. Uh, yeah, so that idea of what success looks like, of what making it is, is defined by white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism. Uh, so when we come to understand that the world has said no to the thing that we value and uh, tells us that we're supposed to be valuing all that stuff too, the, the money and the reputation. Okay, look, there's a problem in um, the ACDA, the American Choral Directors Association, where their honor choirs are overwhelmingly men, overwhelmingly white, especially when you break it down into categories where the children's choir directors tend to be where the women go and where the people of color go. And 
overwhelmingly, the more like prestigious choirs with more advanced musicians, where you do less training, less emotional labor, and you just work on the music, that's where the white men get to conduct. And those are the prestigious. Like, it's been slightly improving over the past 15 years, but it's still real bad. Um, And this sense that, like, training and teaching and creating emotional experiences for children or young people or amateurs is somehow inferior work to the work of you've got an ensemble in front of you and they're highly trained. They've all got master's degrees. What does a conductor have to do then? Be a great musician. Fantastic. Show me that. I know a lot of conductors who could make great things happen with that. Um, Take a choir full of like 39-year-olds and make them sound amazing. Which one's actually harder? I- so you you brought up a point that I have to... So I've had a lot of like mind-blowing moments as I've read your book. Um, I remember specifically the page number of the thing that made me first cry. Um, but one of the things that like totally blew my mind about burnout was... You talk, or um, you give an example. One of y'all was talking with like a group of kids, and you gave you set up this dichotomy of human being versus human giver. Okay, and I'll have you dive into that in just a second because that's one one of my next questions is about. And you ask the kids, you kind of define them, and you say, okay, like, well, which one is better? You know, which one do you think we should be? And everyone's like, we should all be human beings, and. That blew my mind because y'all were like, let's talk about why human givers right. might have. And so, like, when you're talking about this, like, prestige in the choral conducting world and, like, you know, men getting those, wait, men getting those sort of more giant air quotes again, prestigious jobs, yeah. that's when, like, in my brain, I'm like, okay, human beings versus human givers. And exactly. That's just like, that was one of the first things that blew my mind. Because as I was reading it, my brain was like, well, of course, we should all just be human beings. Like, duh. We're all (laughs) entitled to have whatever we need to be and express our humanity, right? Right. Absolutely. (laughs) So this comes from a book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny by a moral philosopher named Kate Mann. So it's a book of moral philosophy. And so in, in this illustration she gives, human beings have a moral obligation to be their humanity. Human beings ha- are entitled to, and in fact, morally obliged to, acquire whatever resources are necessary for them to be their humanity, to express it, to live it. And um, human givers on the other side have a moral obligation to give their humanity to the human beings, to give their time, their lives, their bodies, and the human beings are entitled to everything the givers have to give. Uh, And if you're going to create a system that's going to burn out half the population, this is how you do it. And I've talked to a lot of people about this particular idea. uh, And when I say, this is from a book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, human beings and human givers, which group do you think the men are? Nobody has ever said, oh, obviously the human givers are the are the men. That's, that's, nobody has ever said that. Nobody has ever questioned her 
notion. Of course, it is not this black and white. This is a, you know, exaggerated cartoon illustration of the idea. We all know men who are givers. We all know women who are human beings. And frankly, all of us in different circumstances in our lives end up playing role of being and giver in different situations, which is how things like white feminism happens, where it's not just a power dichotomy. Dich- you know, I'm trying to say dichotomy. power difference. Thank you. Between, <laughs> between masculinity and femininity, but between white and black, um, because society has taught us that men have power over women, and society has taught us that white people have power over black people. That we unquestioningly live that role without being like, oh, ooh, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Um, it takes some conscious effort. You know, you got to be taught to hate and fear, et cetera, et cetera. I knew I could quote some musical theater while I was in a conversation with music. Anyway, so yeah, if if we are all human beings, all entitled to whatever resources it takes to be our humanity, then um, um, what happens to the world? The world becomes a competitive race to acquire resources, which, oh my God, it's a lot like what it is now. <laughs> Who'd have thought? Whereas if the world were full of givers, and no one is entitled to anybody else's time, life, body. Uh, and everyone else is morally obliged to look out for each other. Then, then nobody nobody falls through the cracks because there's always somebody who is saying, you have given too much. It's time for you to go up and take a bath. I'll bring you a glass of wine and make dinner. And when you come downstairs, we can eat together and then sit down on the couch and talk about our feelings. That's how the world is when it's full of human Givers, which is why we say like the most important thing in a book is that the cure for burnout is not self-care. We talk a lot about like self-care strategies and there's a very like Instagramification of commercialized self-care products you can Face buy. masks or, and bath bombs. Like, I mean, if that helps you relax, great, but that's not really self-care. Like it's not, it's not really what that is. That's a whole other, whole other tangent. Um, <laughs> but when, when we all, okay, so like one of the best things you can do for yourself is genuine, legitimate, or OG self-care is have a good night's sleep. Now, if you come in and tell me that you slept for four hours last night because you were up late doing X or Y or Z, um, probably the most likely response you might get is, well, I was up for, I was up all night. I only slept for two and a half hours. And we have this like stress Olympics. Um, Or if you went into work and you were like, I got nine hours of sleep last night and I feel amazing. You might have one or two responses. Response one, oh, you slept for nine hours? Well, good for you. Self-care is so important. I mean, I was up till 3 a.m. baking cupcakes for Becky's birthday party, but good for you. You sleep nine hours. It's so important, self-care. Does that seem more likely or does it seem like they might say, wow, nine hours, man. I don't know what I was thinking. I stayed up till 4 a.m. baking cupcakes for Becky's birthday party. I should have just gone to bed, man. I hope I get nine hours of sleep tonight like you did. Good for you. Congratulations. And you say back to them, yes, I hope your family does everything to like, you know, make dinner for you and insist that you go to bed early and, and stay quiet to make sure that you get the sleep you deserve. You know, that's a, that's the difference in sleep becoming a source of stress or really truly becoming the kind of healing thing that it it has the potential to be. I actually got nine hours of sleep last night because <laughs> I need because I need it. That's actually, awesome. Like truly though, I I don't know. 
I don't know where I read it, but it was like, you know, you need to recognize sometimes that self-care isn't just like the face mask, the bath bombs and like whatever. Sometimes it's getting shit off your to-do list. Yes. And for me, like sleeping was one of those things on my to-do list where I was like, I need to do this. I need to actually take time to sleep enough so that I'm not exhausted every day. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to turn on my Emily PhD in public health filter and uh, go back to the original definition of self-care, which comes from um, mental health and helping, for example, uh, people with mental disabilities live on their own. Self-care, the original definition of self-care is keeping yourself clean and fed. And uh, if it goes beyond keeping yourself clean and fed, it's like bonus. But self-care is literally bathing. Because if you're having, so if you have clinical depression and you have trouble making yourself bathe even twice a week, that is a level of uh, self-care that's probably not going to help you get along in society, right? It's going to probably stand between you and getting along in the world. If you cannot get up off the couch to wash the dishes, it could become a safety hazard. It could become a, a nutritional hazard. So like that, that is self-care. Sleep is a hundred percent self-care, which we cannot do without the help of others, protecting our, our right to sleep and reminding us that even though we're going to go play the stress Olympics someplace, somebody else is going to challenge us to like, you know, trump our stress card and that that'll be their badge of honor that we actually, you know, deserve to be able to be like, yeah, I got nine hours of sleep. Even though we're going to go out into that world, we deserve that sleep. That, so, um, I have lost track of where I was going with that. <laughs> but my, the idea was that self-care is, has really nothing to do with cosmetic care. Although feeling good about how you look is nice. But it's not, I wish people would stop. I know that this is impossible and this will never happen because language is what language is, but I really wish people would stop using the term self-care for cosmetic things. Anyway, that's only partly related to what you were saying. What you were saying is um, the thing you need to do is get things off your to-do list. If in getting it off your to-do list is looking at it and saying, who put that on my to-do list? Did I put that on my to-do list or did Instagram put that on my to-do list? Did I put that there or did my mother put that there? Can I just eliminate it from my to-do list and not do it because it is not actually a thing that I value? To me, that would be an act of self-care to be like, that is not a value that I actually carry. And I was only executing it because of, you know, the, the white supremacist, normative, late, exploitative, rabid, white supremacist capitalist. I, I botched it. Let me do it again. <laughs> white supremacist had normative exploitative, like capitalistic patriarchy told me that this should be on my to-do list. And therefore I'm going to, you know, rip that part of the page off that that's the part of taking a thing off my to-do list. That would be self-care. Um, I mean, there's stuff we all got to do and you got to do it. Um, and, uh, I guess self-care people are not taking it as for granted as they ought to. <laughs> Absolutely. Remembering that we deserve just to be able to keep ourselves clean and fed. Sometimes I feel like that's asking a lot of myself. <laughs> I know, but let, let me tell you right now, you deserve to be clean and fed at all times. Thank you. I needed to hear that today. <laughs> it's surprising how many people do need to be told, but it's because, no, it's not surprising. It's not surprising at all because the world is filled with messages that say, you don't deserve to eat delicious food. 
you you're supposed to be keeping yourself thin because the the uh, human giver syndrome. Human gi- being a human giver is not dangerous if you're surrounded by other givers. But human giver syndrome happens when human beings exist who feel like they're entitled to you. And the kind of things they're entitled to in women in particular is that we be at all times pretty and happy and calm and generous and attentive to the needs of others. And that if we ever fail in that obligation, this moral obligation, that we should be punished. And when we have human giver syndrome, we believe that this is true, that we should be punished. If nobody's around to punish us, we will punish ourselves. Yes. Uh, And we'll even believe that this is not, this is not a weird thing. This is just how society should be. And some people just believe differently, but, but this is the way it is. That's human giver syndrome. When being a giver and feeling the desire to give becomes a danger because you get stuck in the need to show up at all times, pretty happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. And if at any time you require resources for yourself, you require someone else to attend to your needs, it feels like you have failed as a person because you were human? It's ironic and backwards. And um, everything, so the course, light, everything the light touches is patriarchy. I mean, yeah. So of, <laughs> co- so, of course, of course, people need to be told and reminded that you deserve delicious food and comfortable clothes and, and, a, and a warm bed. Like, that is... Yes, you deserve nine and 10 hours of sleep whenever you need it. So I have a couple of follow-up questions to this that address the patriarchy and mental health. So Mm -hmm. I think mental health, since we're kind of on this um, kick of self-care right now, as musicians particularly, and especially as female-identifying musicians, who I self-identify as someone who is working through my human giver syndrome, um especially after reading your book, I was like, oh, that's what that is. Okay. Um, But so as we work through this, um, being a musician, being an artist, being a giver, someone who gives everything to our art, and not just to our art, but to everything that our, again, big air quotes, social roles tell us we need to give to, Mm -hmm. how... Do we take care of ourselves as musicians, as people who like, we talked about this before we kind of officially started too, where it's like music is both the thing that puts us in the hospital and the thing that offers us the most comfort. So how as musicians, do we take care of ourselves mentally? I guess physically too, because it manifests itself that way. There are some things professional musicians specifically can do that are different from what other people would do. Thing number one is, Find something besides music that is a, an outlet of creative self-expression that feels the way music felt when you were a kid. Something that you're not good at, something you can't turn into a side hustle, something that just feels playful and, and fulfilling. I know a lot of musicians who love to cook, to cook and bake really elaborate things. Um, that is a way of 
creative self-expression that is not dependent on the thing that you study that is your job now. Um, I have also done horseback riding, which I am terrible at. Um, but man, I love it. And it is absolute, it's physical activity. It's connection to the animal. It's being outside. It's like all these stress relieving activities all combined into one and I'm terrible at it. Uh, but, but I like it and it makes me feel that the way, you know, conducting in the eighth grade made me feel. Um, so find something else, do not turn it into work and just let that be a thing that you do the way you did music when you first started to do music. Uh, thing number two would be to return to an ensemble, for example, um, sing in your church choir and don't be a section leader. Just show up and do your best. It, it can be hard to navigate like, you know, things, but if you, if you make it clear to the church family, like I am not here to be a professional, I'm just here for, to fulfill my soul as a, as a musician in service to God. If that's the way you feel about music making and it does that for you, and you're not working at a church, you don't have to have a church job as a, I know that it's complicated, but if you can, you know, play in a community band or in some way return to an amateur state of music making, get together with friends and sight read and do badly. What I'm saying is don't make music to make it good. Make music just for the spontaneity and the freshness to make it a new approach to music. Um, so how, mu how musicians can um, recover from burnout that are different from non-musicians. One is don't make music and the other is make bad music. <laughs> the second Not one, bad music. I'm like it's cackling over here because that just, you were like sight read music with your friends and it's okay to be bad. And I immediately was like, no. I don't want to do that. <laughs> Must be perfect. <laughs> See, the thing is, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, when those madrigals were written, like with the four, you know, different parts on the one big sheet of paper, you really think they all like sat at that table and <laughs> perfectly and it was gorgeous the first time through? No. And part of the fun of that process was talking with your friends about, oh my God, I screwed up. I messed that up. And like, that was a social fun thing to do. And remember that music making is evolved always to have been something done in groups. It was never something that was supposed to be created into an industry where one person makes the music and thousands of people are the consumers. That is so fucked up, frankly. Sorry, I couldn't think of any other word that was more true than that. Like the idea that like one person sings and 10,000 people consume that person singing. Like that is so the opposite of what singing was intended to be according to the the biology that we that we have. We carry with us the capacity for singing. Everybody does. Uh, to some degree, and it is it's it's built in us, and we're all supposed to be doing it together. So go go back to something more fundamental. I is it okay if I quote you whenever people tell me I can't sing, and I'll be like, actually, according to Dr. Amelia Nagoski, everyone can. <laughs> everyone can. Now, are there neurological conditions like pitch amusia that mean that you have a neurological deficit in your capacity to recognize pitch? Yes. Those people don't tend to be interested in singing though, because they're like, I don't get it. What, why does everyone, why do people care about music? Because like, it doesn't mean as much to them as it does to people who perceive pitch. Totally. So I'm going to wrap up with my final question. And of course, it wouldn't be a, a conversation with you, without you, with you if we didn't address 
the patriarchy head on. So, (laughs) so, um, one of my favorite things about the book is every time you mention the patriarchy, you put UG in parentheses in your book, which is just like my favorite. Um, because it's just, it's exactly what goes through my brain when I say that word. And I'm just like, nobody likes that word. So we're, we know as musicians that the musical arts are notoriously approximately a century behind Contemporary cultural movements, generally. In terms of social justice and diversity, equity, and inclusion. All of that. We're still sitting around 1920, which is fine. It's not fine. I kind Um, of feel like 1920, we were almost doing better than we are now. You know, I think you might be right. Um, But so I, I guess it's kind of a twofold question is... What have you seen just for yourself as a musician, how it's kind of, and we've talked about this a little bit, but just how you've seen it manifest in the career for musicians now and what you think, and this is an art song podcast, so we'll tie this into art song. Maybe we can talk about vocal music kind of generally, but how vocal music particularly might be able to kind of push things forward faster. So how does patriarchy manifest in the careers of musicians? Mm -hmm. Well, it makes it easier for white men to get positions of power. And therefore, when they become more and more powerful to pass their positions of powers on to other people who are just like them, it's this self-sustaining, self-perpetuating system. Um, and as much as they'll deny that they're doing that, you know, well, we just, we didn't get any, we didn't get any women applicants. Okay. We, we, we had a whole panel and just no women applied or only one woman applied. Uh, well, did you, did you offer childcare at that conference? Did you offer, you know, like, yeah. Um, so do you, do you offer benefits? Do you have any other women on faculty? So there, this delusion that, that, patriarchy and white supremacy are just there because no one has challenged it or no one has tried to get in. Like the fact that I'm the only woman who finished my doctorate, um, cause getting past the door, getting in. And then also once you're in this happened to me, you discover that it's garbage. It's, it's full of old white men perpetuating and insisting that the only thing that matters is their values and that if your values are different, then you don't belong there. And if I don't belong there, then I'm going to get out, which is what I did. Um, And it takes so much energy to keep pushing back. Uh, And the path of least resistance is sometimes so tempting. And it's also not any individual's responsibility to smash the patriarchy or end white supremacy on their own. Like we can only do as much as we can do. We had a great conversation, actually. Um, There was a Yale conference last summer. um, The, I'm sorry, not Yale. There was an Oxford conference, conference last summer on conducting. And there was a whole conversation with a woman conductor who had become a very successful conductor. And she had in general, kept her mouth shut about being a woman, about feminism, about promoting women conductors, about because people already thought they had done enough for feminism by hiring her. And because she wanted for her career to keep advancing, she didn't want to rock that boat. She wanted that to be enough. And she felt like there should be more. I want to, but I also don't want to get fired from this gig. So, I mean, that's the way that capitalism exploits 
people who are not members of the dominant culture is they make you feel like you are beholden and that you cannot push for more and that you don't deserve to have the rest of your voice heard. You're just there to stand as a token to their open-mindedness. I don't have anything good to say about the way that the patriarchy and white supremacy influence careers. Sorry. I wish I could be like, and now there's this whole, I mean, and there is a new, I mean, ever since, for some reason, Black Lives Matter and a pandemic is what it took to make a few academics go, oh, maybe teaching all white men composers isn't a given. I have literally been told by other conductors, well, I mean, there's a time and a place for women conductors. Like there's a time like for pushing for programming of 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 music by women composers or or insisting that the the composer that the conductor on the podium be a person of color. Like, I mean, there's a time and a place for that. Like sometimes you want to do that, but sometimes you just have to do the canon. Do we though? Do we have to do the canon? Who gets to decide what the canon is? Oh, you, more white people. You get to decide what the canon is. Like there, there are cracks just appearing. And there have been people hammering at those cracks for decades already. People have been hammering at the cracks for decades and they're only just starting to widen with a kind of a new generation of it's mostly women and people of color who are entering music academia and starting to open the minds. Uh, It has not happened in the school where I got my doctorate, but there are schools that are starting to open up a little wider. The other question was, Art song in particular, <laughs> sing music by people of color, sing music by non-men. And I think allow it to be owned by people who might not think that it belongs to them. Um, I did my dissertation on Rachmaninoff and he's, he's a dead white guy, right? He's, he's yet another one of those. But in 1917, his home was torn to the ground by communist revolutionaries. They, they destroyed his home. He had to flee his country in, with his wife and daughters in fear of his life. He was a refugee where his safety was in peril. He was aided by the fact that he was rich and famous, so he got to safety, whereas some other refugees may not have been able to. Um, but he lived away from his home for the rest of his life. And his identity as a Russian composer as a Russian man was part of who he was for the rest of his life and he could never go home. So if you've ever been homesick, away at camp and homesick, away at school and homesick, he was homesick every day of his life from 1917 to 1943. And what that does to a person's heart and who they are is something that I think we can all relate to. Even though he's a dead white man, if we show more of who he is and we don't focus on his successes, on his quality, on how what a great guy he is, but we allow ourselves to see his vulnerabilities, his weaknesses, his pain, then we focus on not the masculinity or what we, what we label as masculine, classically masculine strengths and his virtuosity, um, but on his, on his life, his community the larger picture, then Rachmaninoff belongs to a lot more people. Rachmaninoff belongs to a lot more people. And I think also people who are anti-refugee for some fucking reason 
and are like afraid of people coming into this con- into this country. Like, remember, Albert Einstein, like we, are, we can point to a lot of refugees, but like, here's this piece of music, for example, by this composer who, who came here for safety. He came here because he couldn't stay in his home and survive with his wife and kids. Um, and his music shows us all of that pain in his heart, but all of the joy too. And we all share that in common with him. And even though he's a dead white man, um, people who are refugees can relate to the experience that he had. People who are not refugees can see something in a refugee because he is, you know, dead and white. They might feel, you know, like that he's more valuable then. And then to be like, oh my God, he actually fits in this other category too of people who I thought were not as worthy of my care and whatever. Um, I think I think that's how I think that's how art music starts to change the world. That's kind of been my just in my own personal musical journey as I've been trying to, you know, like you said, pursue performance of works by non-white dudes is sometimes I have that moment of hesitation where it's like, am I allowed to sing this? <laughs> am I allowed yeah. to perform this? <laughs> Ooh, you know, and because you never want to cross that line into appropriation or whatever. So, right. I think in art music, it's pretty safe because if it was written from a perspective of, you know, I'm practicing in the classical Western tradition, like if it comes from a composer who is, could even be mentioned in the canon, someone who we like said Bach is an inspiration for me, like, you know, um, I, I don't think that there's any. I don't think that I I wouldn't have any hesitation singing something written as art music by a composer who was not like me. Most composers I know want their music performed more than anything else. <laughs> like, please do my stuff. Um, in art music, I think that's less of a thing because art music is our culture. It belongs to us, you and me, you know, white ladies on the internet. <laughs> um, like we can sing the music of men and, and women and people of color. Um, I, I would start to feel the hesitation when it came into like folk music and popular music, like what belongs to me because what is part of my culture, but music that's presented as classical music. And I think especially if you can include some education, I know education might be like boring and not as fun as like performing, but I do think that it's important to talk about like, who is this person who wrote this music and who am I and who is my accompanist and who else is here on stage and what do we have in common what what is at the heart of this music? What is the common humanity that is the reason somebody wrote this? And honestly, even if it were folk music or popular music, somebody wrote that. Somebody took the time to write it down, to repeat it, to learn it, to produce it. Somebody cared about it enough to create it. It's they they took a part of themselves and put it in the world. What is that part of themselves? And is it something that we all have too? And if we all have it, I I think that it can belong to all of us. That might be like a, that might be an overstatement. But if we can say, I recognize this in this person. Can I, okay, here's, I know we're like out of time, but here's a very, <laughs> very weird example. David Beckham gave an interview to Vogue that said that Victoria Beckham eats the same meal every night. And uh, she's she's a white lady like me, I think. Does she identify as white? I don't know. I don't really know who Victoria Beckham is. I know that she was a member of the Spice Girls. 
<laughs> and she's married to David Beckham. I don't really know. But she's this person who has nothing to do with me. But because of my autism, I like to eat the same thing every day. I have like a very rigid, fixed, like routinized food situation. Um, and I was like, I have something in common with Victoria Beckham. I feel you, girl. I want to eat the same thing every day. And this like point of connection in the most unlikely place lets us know that we're not alone, that all of us are human and we all share something. That's amazing. I love that Victoria Beckham made it into my podcast today. <laughs> I was like, I was so excited. I was like, that is a, that is, that's You're one step rigidity. closer to the queen. You're one yeah. step closer. <laughs> I mean, I wish I could find something that like directly connected me to Beyonce, but I feel like being a participant in her art is enough connection for me. <laughs> I sort of feel like I'm friends with her the same way I'm friends with Rachmaninoff, like by just like listening and appreciating so deeply that mm-hmm. I'm kind of connected to her. I sort of feel like that's it. Whereas Victoria Beckham, I have nothing to like connect. Listen, you this have gone on a very wide tangent. You have a New York Times bestselling book, and chances <laughs> are Beyonce herself at some point has experienced burnout. Oh, for sure. Yeah. She's probably so Beyonce, if you stumble across this podcast <laughs> or the episode <laughs> or the episode you did with Brene, who knows? Yeah. You may have a fan. <laughs> I can't even think about that. That's just too overwhelming. <laughs> All right. So as we wrap up here, I like to close with just a little pithy piece of advice from my guests. So if you could just, what, what do you got? Just a piece of advice for the good folks. <laughs> uh, one of the most important things to remember about wellness is that it's not a state of being or a state of mind. Wellness is the freedom to oscillate through all the states of being human. And I feel like this is particularly resonant with musicians because we know about the balance between tension and ease, between dissonance and consonance. We know that things are supposed to flow from one to the other. And yet somehow in our lives, we think we're supposed to like achieve peace and be done. No, babe. We're (laughs) supposed to oscillate. We're supposed to have movements, slow, fast, slow, fast, slow. (laughs) Like, yeah. That's as pithy as I can make it. That's amazing. It's like, again, just like things you say that I'm like, oh my God, I'm literally doing, like, I just want some fucking peace in my life. (laughs) Yeah, you will have peace. (laughs) You will have it. And then you will lose it. And then you will have it again. And then you'll lose it again. And then you'll have it again. And that's correct. That's the way, that's the way, that's the way you do it. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to keep up with Song Cycle, new episodes will be out on the first Monday of the month. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to us. And be sure to check out our Spotify playlists. And as always, you can find out more at CincinnatiSongInitiative.org and follow us on all the socials. Until next time, just keep singing, y'all. This podcast is produced by Cincinnati Song Initiative and hosted on Anchor. This podcast episode was edited and engineered by Andrew Nally.